You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. Good to be back with you again. If you would turn your Bible to Luke chapter 11, we're going to finish up today, this evening. In Luke chapter 11, we'll be back in the Gospel of John next Sunday, John chapter 9. If you will pray for uh, my preparation in that. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra for leading us in worship, preparing us for the preaching of God's Word. Uh, one brief announcement tonight, we have our fifth Sunday Lord's Supper celebration. Uh, we will have a short message from Luke chapter 11, and we will observe the table. We all recognize in this world opposed that we need to avail ourselves as much as we can to God's means, his instruments of grace. Um, it's a war, and, and, and God has given us means. And so hopefully you can be here tonight to celebrate the table uh, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as well, there will be a love offering uh, for the benevolence ministry. Last year, our benevolence ministry gave over $108,000 to those in physical and material need. That is a, that is a responsibility of the church. Um, and, and so um, you give sacrificially to that, that benevolence offering and I want you to know it's being used because every time uh, we, we care for these, these people who have need, they hear the gospel as well. Uh, so it's not just social gospel. It, it, is, it is caring for them materially and physically as we are called to do, but it's also bringing their real need to bear through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's a great opportunity, a great ministry, but there are financial needs. And so we will be having that uh, offering tonight after the Lord's table. <clears throat> well, if you would look with me, we're going to be just looking at the first part of verse four this morning, but, uh, for the entire context, verse one, Jesus was praying in a certain place. <clears throat> and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, we, we desire that you're name would be hallowed today. We, we desire that your kingdom uh, would grow and be extended today. We pray that you would give us our daily bread, our daily spiritual and uh, material provision today. And we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that is in Jesus Christ. We pray that all of these realities could be understood even better today as we consider this important passage in prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1984, a man broke in to the apartment of a young lady who's living in North Carolina, Jennifer Thompson. And without going into the sordid details, 
He abused her. But she had the wherewithal to take note of his, his appearance, his face, any potential, uh, potential scars or markings that she would be able to later identify if she survived. Later, she said, when and if I survived the attack, I was going to make sure that he was put in prison and he was going to rot. Within a few days, her attacker had been identified and she identified him from a series of, of photos by the police. And based on her testimony, Ronald Cotton was sentenced to life. Now, two years after the sentencing, Cotton was brought back up um, and he uh, was granted another trial. Jennifer took the stand again. And this time, the defense brought in another suspect. But Jennifer said that she had never seen that suspect before in her life. And, and so 11 years later, Jennifer was asked to assist the prosecution again. This time, they asked her to provide a blood sample for DNA. She did so, and then the unimaginable occurred. DNA testing proved that Ronald Cotton was not her attacker. Bobby Poole was the man that she said she had never seen before. Jennifer had helped send the wrong man to prison for over a decade. And so besides the severe trauma of having been attacked back in 1984, she was now devastated with guilt and shame for having unwittingly sent an innocent man to prison. She wallowed in her, in her guilt and shame for about two years, and then she determined to do something about it. So she set up a meeting with Ronald Cotton at a church in the town where she had been attacked. And she looked at Ronald Cotton in his eyes and said, I am sorry if I, if I spend every day for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it would not come close to what I feel. Well, Cotton was quiet and he was calm. He finally spoke to her and he said, I am not angry with you. For two hours they talked and they even brought up Bobby Poole, the real um, person who had attacked her. And Cotton said, you know, we, we were both victims. We were both victims. Well, they made their way out of the, the church and their families were out in the parking lot and they cried and they hugged. Ronald Cotton had forgiven Jennifer Thompson. Now, you might ask, how could a man, how could Ronald Cotton be able to forgive a woman who sent him away to prison for over 10 years for something he did not do? In fact, at one point while he was in prison, 
he had conjured up a scheme that if he ever saw Bobby Poole, he was going to kill him. But his father, Ronald Cotton's father, told him, if you kill Bobby Poole, you're no different than Bobby Poole. He said, what you need to do is to trust in Jesus Christ. And that's what Ronald Cotton did. And because Ronald Cotton received the forgiveness of sins of his heavenly father, because the heavenly father forgave him as the son absorbed the debt that Ronald Cotton owed, he was able to forgive Jennifer. In other words, Ronald forgave because he had been forgiven. This gets at the heart of this fourth petition of what we have been calling the kingdom prayer in Luke 11, 1 to 4. We've been considering this model kingdom prayer. And so on January the 1st, we saw that it is a taught prayer. Jesus has to teach the disciples how to pray like this. We don't pray naturally like this. We also saw that it is a family prayer. Only those who come to the father through the elder brother, the son, can pray like this. This is a, this is a family prayer for those who have been adopted into God's family. We also saw that it is a jealous prayer. It's a prayer for those who are jealous for the name of God. It's also a missional prayer where we pray that God's kingdom would come and envelop the earth. Last time on January the 15th, we saw that it's also a a dependent, desperate prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Today, in this fourth petition, we see that kingdom prayer is a penitent prayer, a penitent prayer. Look with me in verse four. Jesus teaches us to pray and he says, you pray this way and forgive us our sins. And so if the last prayer, give us this day our daily bread, that that petition is a prayer for provision This is a prayer for pardon. Now, now every Christian here knows that the ground of your relationship with God the Father is built on forgiveness. Now, most particularly, this is, let me give you a fancy term here, forensic forgiveness. Forensic forgiveness. Now, what do I mean by forensic forgiveness? Well, forensic means pertaining to a court of law. And so a branch, a a popular branch of criminology is forensic science, which deals with the application of medical science to legal issues. And so maybe you have seen CSI, for instance. And in shows like that, they depend on forensic science to solve the crimes. And so forensic forgiveness is simply this. God is our judge and we need his verdict to be in our favor to receive the forgiveness of sins. Let me repeat that. God is our judge and we need his verdict to be in our favor to receive the forgiveness of sins. 
Um, so if you understand that there's only one way to forgiveness, only one way, and that is God judging his son instead of you, what will that do with regard to your relationship to the Father? You see, God is not like that unscrupulous janitor who at the end of the day just sweeps our sins underneath the rug or like the teenager who cleans his room by throwing everything in the closet as if it's not there. That's not how God works. God does and will judge every sin that every sinner has ever committed. Every sin that's ever been committed will be judged by God. Every sin will be punished. Romans 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Note this, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is coming against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But it's only in understanding the bad news that we are situated to receive the good news. Indeed, God justifies the ungodly. Romans 4 verse 5. But how does he do that? Verse 7, he covers our sins. How does he do that? The Lord does not count our sins against us. Verse 8 of Romans 4. So how can God justify? How can God cover our transgressions and not keep a record of our sins without impugning who he is as holy and righteous? And the answer is this. Divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution. Divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution. And so as our substitute, Jesus Christ the Son has our sin imputed to him at the cross. And so he is treated as if we had committed, he had committed every one of our sins. And then by faith, his righteousness that he fulfilled in his obedient life is imputed to us. It's a sweet exchange as God himself substitutes for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this, we receive a once for all forgiveness. You are forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. But given that, why would Jesus teach us to pray daily? Forgive us our sins. Not just once, but daily. Well, first of all, we need to recognize this isn't the prayer of an unrepentant sinner who's coming to God for the first time. So that, though that would be a wonderful prayer for the unbeliever, this is the prayer of a loving son, a loving daughter coming to their heavenly father. And evidence of sonship is the desire to maintain a healthy relationship with the heavenly father through repentance. Now, an illustration of this is in John 13 where Jesus in the upper room at the last supper as our suffering servant, he washes his disciples' feet. And Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing of me. 
You have nothing of me. But Jesus' act of foot washing, among other things, was a picture of the forgiveness that God gives in his repeated cleansing of those who are already saved, of those who are already forgiven. So we sin daily. Hopefully and prayerfully, your lives are not marked by premeditated sin, but we, we commit unintentional sins daily. But these sins do not make us entirely dirty because we've already been cleansed once for all by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But practical cleansing is needed every day because daily we fall short of the glory of God. And so fellowship with our Father is hindered by this sin. And hence the need uh, to be restored in our fellowship uh, through confession, through repentance. And what that does, it primes us, it prepares our hearts to be conduits of his forgiving grace. And that brings us to the second part of this, this prayer, this, this petition. Kingdom living is a forgiving life. We've seen kingdom prayer is a penitent prayer. Kingdom living is a forgiving life. Look at the second part of that petition. Forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, God doesn't forgive us because we forgive. That, that's backwards. That's work salvation. That's every other religion in the world, all right? But the evidence that we have been forgiven is that we forgive. That's the fruit. And so we can come for daily forgiveness because we're coming repentantly as evidenced by the fact that we forgive others who are indebted to us. Our willingness to forgive others demonstrates and is the fruit of having been forgiven by God. There's an inseparable connection between these two truths. So as God shows us grace, we grow in grace. We act graciously. As God forgives us daily, we grow in our capacity to forgive. Robert Louis Stevenson, in a, in a travel book, it was a nonfiction travel book called Picturesque Notes of Edinburgh. He tells the true story of two sisters that he met in his travels who had had a, a disagreement with each other. They had a falling out. It was actually over theology. Don't know what it was. But they had a falling out. And, and, the, and the controversy was so bitter that they literally never spoke to each other again. But here's the rub. Because of a lack of means, they had to live together in a one-bedroom apartment. And so what they did is they took some chalk and they drew a line right down the center just to make sure I don't cross into your territory, you don't cross into mine. And for years, these two sisters coexisted in hateful silence. And until their death, every night 
they would go to sleep hearing the heavy breathing of their enemy. Now, here's the question. Does either one of these sisters show signs that they have been forgiven by God in Jesus Christ? No. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. That's a very important point this text is giving us. And that's why the enemy can deceive us into counterfeit forgiveness. He has no problem with counterfeit forgiveness. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to speak about what true forgiveness is and what it's not. Now, I have gathered this list. This is not an exhaustive list. You could probably add to this list. I have gathered this list through my own counseling of people who struggle with bitterness. So oftentimes you see it in marriage. I have gathered this list from uh, biblical counselors that I am friends with. I have gathered this list from books that I've read on forgiveness, but it's not uh, an exhaustive list. But hopefully this can help all of us understand what forgiveness is not and what it really is. So let's start with the negative, the seven untruths about forgiveness. We're going to move through this quickly. First of all, forgiveness is not forgetting. God doesn't forget. Now you say, well, how about Jeremiah 31, 34? I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. But this is a metaphor designed uh, to stress that God's grace is not in holding us liable. God is omniscient. God cannot literally forget. Omniscience is one of his inherent attributes. God knows all things. God forgets nothing. Uh, furthermore, this is psychologically impossible. But... Our forgiveness should be such that we act like we have amnesia with regard to the offense. Second untruth. Forgiving someone does not mean you no longer feel the pain of the offense. In fact, in most cases, the only way to stop hurting is to stop feeling this may be the primary reason people are reluctant to forgive. They know they can't stop feeling the sting and they don't want to be insincere. So again, forgiving someone does not mean you no longer feel the pain. Third, forgiving someone does not mean you stop longing for justice. Justice is good. Forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. We need to recognize that vengeance is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. The Apostle Paul says, though, vengeance is not ours. Vengeance is the Lord's. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll reap coals of fire on his head. Vengeance is the Lord's. 
It means we choose to let God determine the appropriate course of action. You see, when we play the, the role of vigilante, and we love vigilante movies, don't we? Because we see a lot of injustice. Well, just know, no one's going to get away with it ultimately. But we see immediate injustice, and then someone comes along and, and renders justice. But the problem with being a vigilante is that there is an inherent law of retribution. For, for something to be just, it has to be rooted in the law of retribution, which means only the guilty are punished. Generally, vigilantes end up punishing more than just the guilty. There's collateral damage. But secondly, the, the, the penalty has to be proportionate to the crime. And oftentimes, vigilantes uh, do something that is not proportionate to the crime. Fourth, forgiveness doesn't mean you make it easy for the offender to hurt you again. If you're in a, a marriage where you're being abused, you don't make it easy for that person to hurt you again. It may mean that you have to set boundaries. Love does not aid and abet. Fifth, forgiveness is rarely, depending on the severity of the offense, a one-time event. God's forgiveness is once for all, for sure, though we come daily asking for forgiveness, daily cleansing. But his forgiveness is once for all. That's what it means to be justified. But we are frail. We are broken and weak. And so may mean that the person you forgave yesterday, you wake up tomorrow and you have to re-forgive. You make a choice every day to forgive that person. Sixth, forgiveness will not, and I say this matter-of-factly, there may be exceptions, but generally speaking, will not lead the offender to become more entrenched in his or her sin. The opposite is generally true because he who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. When we receive forgiveness, it has a transforming effect generally on us. And then finally, seventh, forgiveness is not motivated primarily by self-interest. Now, why do I say that? Because a lot of therapeutic counseling goes like this. You need to forgive that person because bitterness is going to eat you up. It's not for your well-being. It's not for your good if you don't forgive that person. Well, that's true. But that's a secondary benefit. In gospel-centric forgiveness, you are forgiving because it honors God. It honors his gospel. It glorifies him. You do it for the love of God and you do it for the love of neighbor. Those are seven untruths. You probably could add to that. But let me offer you seven truths before we adjourn this morning. First, God in Christ forgave us by absorbing in himself the destructive consequences of our sin against him. He absorbed the debt we owe. Now, why do I make that point? Forgiveness is costly. 
it's going to cost you. Gracious, yes, but not free. Because grace always requires the one who's given the grace to absorb the debt that the offender owes. That's the gospel. Second, God expects believers to forgive others in the way he forgave them. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, now that's a command, which means it's the will of God 100% of the time. Now, this has been my observation, not only uh, about my own self, but about most Christians I know especially younger Christians. Many Christians are more concerned about God's hidden will and discerning God's hidden will than his revealed will. And so they get caught up with, oh, what decision should I make with regard to this job or, or this school or, or this major or should I, should I marry this person? Those are aspects of God's hidden will. But here's what I tell people. If you will major in his revealed will, the hidden will will take care of itself. That's just a fact. So, it may be relatively indifferent whether you live in this town or that town. It may be relatively indifferent whether you take this job or this job. I remember when I was praying about coming to Lakeview, I, I met with Dr. Moeller, and he said, there's nothing to be mystical here. He said, both choices are good choices. You can stay here or you can go to Auburn. And I loved his, his counsel there. So it may be relatively indifferent whether you major here or you major in this particular major. But it may be a matter of life and death and eternity, whether you approach an old friend where there has been animosity between you and your old friend, someone you've been estranged from. That may be a matter of life and death for you. Because if you remain unforgiving, you may perish in your sins. It's not that you can lose your salvation. We can't lose our salvation because it's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus could be unresurrected, then I can lose my salvation. But my refusal to forgive may be evidence that I have not received forgiveness. Third, God's forgiveness, now this is going to shock you maybe, is conditional. Now, grace is not conditional, but God's forgiveness is conditional. What's it conditional, conditioned upon? Our repentance. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Acts 20 tells us. Which means, in a very real sense, our forgiveness of others 
is conditional. Let me qualify this. First of all, we should never be bitter. Bitterness is a sin. It will eat you up, and it does not glorify the Lord. But we should always have a disposition of forgiveness where we are willing to forgive should repentance occur. We are ready to forgive. But the actual uh, transaction of forgiveness, where we actually grant forgiveness, is dependent on repentance. Luke 17, if your brother sins against you, you rebuke him, and if he repents, you forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, if he repents seven times, you forgive him. But until he repents, you are ready to forgive. You are not bitter. You're not gossiping about him. You're not slandering him. You are bringing him to the Lord in prayer. But the actual transgression is dependent upon repentance. Fourth, God forgave us in Christ by canceling the debt we owed him. So the way we cancel the debt of one who has hurt us is by refusing to bring it up again. Ken Sandy offers four promises that believers make when they forgive. The first, I'm not going to dwell on this incident. I'm not going to dwell on it. If it if it's brought to my mind, I'm just going to bring it to the Lord. Second, I won't bring it up again nor will I use it against you. No matter what you've done, if I've forgiven you, I'm not gonna bring it up again. Third, I won't talk to others about this incident. That's hard because our natural fleshly tendency is to slander. It's so easy. I will not talk to others about this incident or it's not forgiveness. And then fourth, I will not let this incident hinder our personal relationship. Now, the personal relationship may be uh, different after that. So you, you may have a person who is a perennial adulterer and they have, they have committed adultery on their spouse time and time again. They repent, you forgive them, but it may be that the marriage is over at that point. But you're not going to allow bitterness to hinder this relationship. Fifth, forgiving others as God has forgiven us, means we refuse to be vigilantes. Again, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If you play that role, you may, have, you may get some kind of perverted form of, of justice, but it's not true justice because true justice is rooted in the law of retribution. Sixth, forgiving others as God has forgiven us means that we do good rather than evil to them. Repay no one evil for evil, but have regard for good things in the sight of all men. You actually do good to the one who has hurt you, to the one you have forgiven. 
Because that's what God does for us. He does good for us every day. Every day he gives us blessings we do not deserve. Because not only did he forgive us, he committed to our well-being. Seventh. And finally, forgiveness is an act of the will more than a feeling. Just like sometimes cruciform love is. You don't have to feel love to show love in the shape of a cross for someone. Forgiveness is an act of the will. Now, here's the glorious thing about the way we're constituted. We're holistic beings. And so if you commit by your will to do the right thing, oftentimes the feelings follow. We're holistic beings. The feelings follow. But as we lose sight of our daily need for forgiveness, and it's easy to do that, we're, we're so by nature self-righteous. As we lose sight of our daily need for forgiveness, and again, that's why this aspect of the prayer is so important, we quit being willing to forgive ourselves. Hence, we begin to keep a record of other people's wrongs toward us. And as we do this, we keep that record, we become increasingly aware of how much they have affected us by their failures towards us. See how this works and how it just snowballs? And then as we carry this awareness with us, we become increasingly hostile towards those people. We become irritated, impatient, and intolerant of them. If that is the way you feel about someone, it is likely you could trace it all the way back to the fact that you have lost sight of how much you yourselves have been forgiven. No wonder this, act, this aspect of the kingdom prayer is so important. So let me close with three questions. First of all, have you experienced the once for all forgiveness from the judge of the earth? That's the most important need you have. You can do that. You don't know what I've done. Oh, the scriptures are replete with every sin you can even envision that have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. No matter what you've done or doing, if you will confess your sin, if you will confess that Jesus Christ is the only sin bearer, the only savior, that he took your sins in toto on the cross and was judged for them and was raised that you might be declared righteous and forgiven. He is faithful and just to forgive you. That's a promise. Second, very important. This is a question to believers. Do you live a life marked? And could others say, could your spouse say this about you? Could your children say this about you? Could your parents say this about you? Could your closest friends say this about you? You live a life marked by a short account with God and others, as this kingdom prayer calls us to, asking for constant forgiveness 
for your sins. And then third, again, is your life marked by forgiveness? The hallmark of someone who has been forgiven is that they are notorious forgivers. That's a call to every believer here. But this is also, again, a call to those of you who have not yet trusted. And so as Adam and the musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity. Maybe right now you are convicted. I, don't, I'm, I haven't been forgiven. And one of the ways I know of I haven't been forgiven is I meet up with bitterness. There are people in my life that I refuse to forgive. And, and I realize through the word here that if I refuse to forgive them, Maybe I haven't been forgiven. You can be forgiven. That's the good news of the gospel. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus. We would love to talk to you about that. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.